Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, is a verse you may be familiar with. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But in 1 John 4, 18, we read, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The man who fears is not made perfect in love. So, is there a contradiction? Well, no, I don't believe there is. The real question we have to answer is, what does it mean to fear God? You see, friends, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 tells us that. And standing before the judgment seat of Christ is rather an unsettling idea, isn't it? Paul goes on to say that we will give an account of what we have done and what we have not done. And that concentrates the mind, doesn't it? Does it mean that we are back in the old desert of trying to make ourselves right with God? I thought the gospel was about realizing that the Lord Jesus Christ has done everything to make us acceptable to God. And therefore, we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that the gospel? Yes, of course it is. Of course it is. But nevertheless, there will be a moment when we will come face to face with our Lord Jesus Christ at his judgment seat. And that will be an incredible, cleansing, purging experience. Because you see, it seems to me that the question he will ask each one of us is not, why did you do such terrible things? Why did you make so many mistakes? The question he will ask is, why didn't you let me love you more? Why wasn't our relationship more real? Why wasn't it more genuine? Why didn't we have a better relationship? I could have loved you for the whole of your life. But you didn't let me. There were so many ways in which you kept me out. Why, why, why? You see, we have to understand the difference between fearing God and being afraid of him. No one needs to be afraid of God, but we must all fear him. Fearing him means accepting that he's in charge, that his commandments must be obeyed. That the reason why we are created, why we have been created, is to love God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's how we find our fulfillment. You see, we're going to look at uh, that passage from 1 Peter 4 in a moment. Let me remind you of verses 18 and 19 of 1 Peter 1. You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. 
the Archbishop of Paris was preaching one day in Notre Dame, and he told a story about a group of young men who decided to play a joke on an old priest. One of them would go and make his confession and invent a whole list of the most appalling, terrible crimes he could think of, just to see what the old man's response would be. Well, the lad began to make his mock confession. And very soon, the old priest realized what was going on, and he stopped him. This is your penance, he said. I want you to go over there to the crucifix, kneel down and look straight into his eyes, and say, you did that for me, and I don't give a damn. Well, the young man strode over to the figure on the cross, as the priest had told him. He knelt down, he looked straight into his eyes, he opened his mouth, and not a syllable came. He couldn't say a word. And the archbishop concluded, I know that that story is true, because you see, I was that young man. That is what it means to fear God. That is what it means. To know in your heart that that is what he has done for you. You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That's how much God values you and me. You know I, I like old hymns. It's a... Um, hobby of mine. I shall be muttering hymns in the old people's home. He's on again about... Anyway. But there are one or two hymns that seem to me to be totally mistaken. There's a wonderful hymn that starts off beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand, the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. And it goes on, and from my smitten heart with tears Two wonders, I confess, the wonder of his glorious love and my own worthlessness. Now, you and I are not worthless because the blood of the Lamb of God was shed for you and me. That was how much God values you and me. You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Anyway, let's turn to the passage from 1 Peter that we, uh, Alison read to us. 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11, and it's on page 1220 in the church Bibles, 1220. And if you have a Bible near you, it will help if you just turn to it. So, in verse 7, we're told the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. You know, modern philosophers have done their best to take away the mechanism with which we can actually make sense of God's purposes. They've kind of tried to rob the English language of the words in which we express spiritual realities. And for some people, the concept of the end of all things is total nonsense. 
How can there be an end to all things? Some people want to, as it were, sanitize the gospel and to rob it of any supernatural element. And the problem with that kind of faith is that it has nothing whatsoever to do with the word of God in scripture. Here and in many other places, the scriptures teach that the God who began everything by the word of his power will keep his promise and bring everything to a conclusion. In a sense, anything else would be totally illogical. What's the point in beginning something if you don't have a purpose and an end in view? Well, God has an end in view. And we're told in verse 7, the end of all things is near. And every generation needs to know and understand that message. We've got to live constantly in the expectation of God's consummation of time and of his eternal purpose. The end of all things is near. That edge must constantly be in our Christian life. And Peter says that we must do three things. Therefore, we must be, first of all, clear-minded. And to be spiritually clear-minded nowadays is very, very difficult because from every direction we're lulled into a spiritual torpor. There are no defined boundaries anymore. Everything is relative. And our materialistic culture denies the very existence of spiritual reality. Nevertheless, we've got to retain our clear-mindedness. We've got to understand that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even to the the division between joints and marrow, soul and spirit, judging the thoughts and actions of the heart. I don't know whether you like to watch cookery programs. They give me the willies, really. Not only because they, you know, make me salivate and and, um, encourage my gluttony, but because of the way in which the chefs use knives. And the end of the little fingers over there. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword or chef's blade. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Judging the thoughts and actions of the heart. The gospel is not fuzzy relative, compromising. There is an edge to God's word. And we must be clear-minded and alert because the next step is to be self-controlled. In other words, we mustn't get mixed up with things that take our attention away from the primary purpose we have of serving Christ's kingdom. We've seen, haven't we, over the last two weeks, a whole succession of people who have given their time and attention, their commitment for years to one aim, to win an Olympic medal, to to take part in the Olympic Games. How on earth would anyone win three medals, two medals, one medal, unless they had been disciplined and self-controlled And the same principle operates in living as a Christian. It really does. And if we live that kind of life, we are enabled to pray. 
See, these two things in verse 7 are not just enjoined to us, are not just urged upon us for the sake of of, of doing them. There is an end in view. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. So that, in other words, the link between us and God doesn't get clogged, doesn't get doesn't break down, in other words. And that's, that's a terrible tragedy when that happens. Everything goes wrong in our spiritual understanding if we don't have daily contact with the living God. Now, Peter feels fairly strongly about what he says in verse, verses 8 and 9. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And a look behind the English at the Greek will help here. The verb that Peter uses for love is agape. The word Paul uses when he speaks of the total self-giving of God. You remember, I've um, quoted a man called George Caird uh, before. I, I, I tell you that it came from him, just in case you think it, it was one of my good ideas. I don't have good ideas. In Greek, the the three words for love, eros, is all take. Philia, friendship, is give and take. Agape is all give, all give. And that's the word that Paul uses here. Love one another deeply. It can equally be rendered fervently or intensely. Peter's comment about love covering a multitude of sins could be linked to Proverbs 12, verse 3. Hatred stirs up dissension but love covers over all wrongs. But it's got to be genuine love, hasn't it? There's no room in the Christian fellowship for pseudo-concern. <laughs> There's a, a kind of custom which has developed over the last few years, it seems to me. I don't know. It may have been going for a longer time. Folk answer the phone, and immediately they say, hello, how are you? And if you were to say, I'm glad you answered that question. My bunions are awful. I've got pain in my back, and I can't hear, I can't see, and my hair's falling out. What would they say? They wouldn't know what to say, because really, they're not concerned how you are. Hello, how are you? Or, perhaps my naughty sense of humor. Hello, how are you? Well, actually, I'm not really very well. I died three days ago. No, 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 no. We've got to have genuine concern, haven't we? Genuine concern. Love one another deeply. Because when we love one another deeply, those painful Breaks in fellowship, which happen in every church, can be healed, can be ameliorated. A name from the past, Richard Vermbrandt. Do you remember him? Um, a wonderful Romanian pastor who spent many, many years in prison. When people criticized the church and said how many hypocritical 
people there are in the church, he would, he would answer like this. He would say, if you go into a hospital, what do you expect to find? You expect to find sick people, don't you? And when you go into a Christian fellowship, you expect to find broken people, people with rough edges, people with problems and brokenness in their lives. Of course you do. The glory of the church is the fact that we can live with those things and love one another so that love will cover over a multitude of sins. That's what it's all about. As Billy Graham once said, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll spoil it. And what about hospitality? Verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Do we open our homes to one another? Is there genuine love for new people? Years ago, I had a telephone conversation with a lady who said she was thinking about coming to church. And then she said, you know, it's easy to say, come to our church. It's so welcoming. So you go, and when you get there, no one speaks to you. Well, I'm sure it wouldn't happen here. Please, God, it wouldn't happen here. But it did happen to Jenny and me once when we were on holiday. We were staying near the lovely old Oxfordshire town of Whitney. And on the Sunday morning, we went to a large and seemingly flourishing church in the town center. After the service, we drifted along with the rest of the folk into the church hall for coffee, and we sat down at a table to be joined by two very friendly folk who we assumed were regular members of the congregation, but we were wrong. Actually, they also were visitors. And because no one had spoken to them, they came over to speak to us. We had a great time, but the rest of the folk ignored us completely. Of course, it wouldn't happen here. Well, as I say, please God, it wouldn't happen here. And another essential element of genuine and effective Christian fellowship is the extent to which we discover and share our different gifts, the different gifts that God has given us. Verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. You will know um, that on, uh, at least I hope you'll know, that on September the 8th, we are asking everyone to come together for a, a stewardship tea. Um, you'll be seeing posters around with a potter making a piece of pottery, and the caption is a work in progress, because building our fellowship here is a work in progress. I hope you've booked the day, booked the date in your diary, September the 8th, and we're going to uh, invite everyone to a shared tea in the church hall. The elders have called everyone together so that we can follow up that wonderful time we had at Pilgrim Hall at the end of June. We want to see how we can move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit and share the gifts that he's given each one of us for the benefit of the whole fellowship. That uh, parable that I asked to be read from Matthew chapter 25 always sends a shiver down my spine. The man who had two talents came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. 
See, I have gained two more. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Then the man who had received the one talent came, Master. He said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I've harvested where I haven't sown and gather where I didn't scatter. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers. Wouldn't do very well today, would he? So that when I returned, I would have had it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have Even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness. Verse 11. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very word of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Well, there you have it, the dual command of the gospel, to witness and to serve. I may have told you before about a Lutheran bishop in Denmark who used to ordain ordinance. And the evening before the ordination, he would always remind them of this. Tomorrow, I will ask you, will you, will you, will you? There will come another day when the master will ask, Did you? Did you? Did you? We began by asking what it really means to fear God, and the answer is that it means accepting that he's in charge, and one day we will have to answer for what we have done or not done. But the question he will ask will not be phrased in terms of condemnation, for as Romans chapter 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I remember as a boy of 14 when I first heard that verse and it came to me like a lightning bolt. I thought to myself I'm free and I've been struggling to understand and appreciate that for the rest of my life. But it's true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus but there will be judgment. And he will say Why didn't you let me love you more? Why didn't we have a more genuine, real relationship? Because we can. It's open to everyone. So, here in 1 Peter 4, we have just a brief glimpse of what a Christian fellowship really ought to be and do. How do we shape up? Let's remind ourselves of that verse in chapter 1. You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You can break a promise. Of course you can. You can disobey an order, certainly. You can even betray a friend. But can you ignore a love like that? That's the question each one of us will have to answer on the day when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ.